You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast, where we equip you to lift the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Botker, and I'm with my one good friend, Dr. Stephen Kissler, an epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health. And Dr. Mark is not here. He is MIA. Uh, good news is Stephen said he checked with his wife and that he is alive. So I was texting him like, where are you, Mark? Uh, I heard I, I got an email from him on Saturday and then nothing since then. And I know that he's on shift right now and he's probably going crazy. So thoughts or prayers with him. Stephen, I'm so glad to have you uh, here right now. How are you doing, buddy? Yeah, thanks. It's really good to see you too. You know, things are things are going all right on my end. <laughs> sure, <laughs> I, I think you're just constantly getting busier and busier, and all those things. How have you had more interview requests since we've last talked? Yeah, I have. Um, I was just on Sirius XM Doctor Radio this morning. Oh, um, fun! Which yeah, I think went all right, and I uh, got a couple more coming up later this week too. So these ones are starting to get a little bit longer. Sort of at the beginning, I think they just sort of wanted short sound bites, but now there's some people sort of wanted to do longer stories and stuff. So. Yeah, it's been busy, but it's all going Man. well. And I mean, you, you just before this, you were like in the cave doing the research. I'm sure you're thinking, I'm out. I'm out. It's published. I can now go, oh, wait a minute. Wait yeah. a minute. Oh, yeah. man, yeah. I'm back into a different cave. That's totally right. Different, yeah. <laughs> Very different the cave. The interview cave. Well, yeah. I'm glad we could sneak some time in the chat with you, uh, hang out for a little bit. We have a lot to cover. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's happened over the weekend. Uh, you know, I was just riffing with Stephen before we started recording and how, you know, I kind of got a sense of this uh, and maybe you did too, Stephen, but this weekend, you know, we had our windows open a little bit and I guess hear a lot more kids playing outside. And that was kind of my first glimpse of, I, I'm starting to feel like there is, uh, uh, there's some weight now starting to happen with the people who have been inside for a few weeks and uh, a little bit of resistance. Uh, and we'll talk more about this. And now we see the protests starting to chime up in many different states, including our home state here in Colorado. And we'll talk more about this, but uh, I kind of want to frame it through that perspective. Uh, there's a lot of people out there who are disgruntled, upset with the social distancing measures, and I don't blame them in many regards because it's difficult, and so many people, so many people have lost uh, their their jobs. Uh, this is a really difficult time, uh, and so all the more that we need to be grounded in what is real. <laughs> we've got to be grounded in what's in real. We've been talking about this, and it's it it like literally the real pervades everything. It, over, it oversees science, oversees everything. And without it, we're going to make really bad decisions. And yeah, who knows? I'm just, I'm the podcaster, dude. I don't, I, 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 my degrees don't equip me to, to be the authority. That is why this is not a one-man show and there'd be no one but my mom and me listening to this own podcast, right? We have Steven here who I trust incredibly well. Uh, and so he's going to give us a little bit of insight of what's going on. So I want to start with this. Now, we're going to build a case here. Uh, and I want to start, we're going to will our way through some important things that I saw on the news that I don't fully understand. And I want to talk to Stephen about. So the first thing is this idea that there's this difference between positivity and prevalence. Now, I saw this article. I had no idea what was talking about. But all I knew is that it was talking that since that uh, nationwide, there is a 20% positivity uh, for what was called. And basically, it's saying that for every... No, Stephen will correct all of my misunderstandings. So I'll just go ahead and say what I think. Uh, that for basically for every five cases or every te five tests that are done, one, uh, uh, one for, I think one is not positive. 
or positive or, or positive. I forgot which way it was. One is positive. It would one be is true. positive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so every five, there's one that is positive. So uh, so I'm gonna pick here because it did say that there's a difference between positivity and prevalence, and most epidemiologists trust the prevalence model or whatever it is over the positivity, even though it can have some help. The reason why I want to talk about this is also listed Colorado as one of those who is heavy in the twenty percent. And all the while I'm thinking, hey, we're on the decline. We're doing great. We're kind of we we've, we've peaked. We're coming down. Now I'm seeing this article. Does this have any influence on where we're at? And what does this mean between the two? Yeah, so you're right. So prevalence is sort of the gold standard in a sense of like what what we're going for. Because what 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 prevalence is is the number of infections per X number of people that there are in the population. And so that's that's what's important because that's that that tells us actually how much is spreading. Now positivity, exactly as you said, is the number of tests that we run that come back as positive. So that's a proxy for prevalence because you would expect that if the prevalence is higher, you would have more tests coming back positive. But that goes, part of the assumption there is that you're testing somewhat randomly. So positivity and prevalence are equal if you're doing a perfectly random sample of the population, which clearly we're not doing. You know, <laughs> we're testing we're testing people who are going to hospital, we're testing people who are yeah. sick. Sometimes we're testing people multiple times because we suspect that they have COVID, but they haven't tested positive because the test isn't perfectly specific. And so we test yeah. them again until they get a positive test, right? Yeah. And so all of these things play into and everything that I just mentioned plays into inflating the positivity rate. Okay. Because if you target, if you tr- basically, if you, if you only test people who you already think are positive, then that's going to give you a very high positivity rate, which means that, you know, if, if your goal is to find positive people, then, then you're doing that very efficiently. So in some sure. sense, that's a good thing, but it doesn't actually give you a very good sense of what's going on in the general population. So the, the issue here, as it has been in so many conversations that we've had, is that we, we don't have the tests to do wide-scale testing, and so we don't have a sense of really what the true prevalence is. And there are a lot of reasons to think that the prevalence and the positivity, in this case especially, are very different. Okay. And so that that makes sense. That helps me. I, this is this is helpful. Again, you're the, I was going to hit this, and you already did. That one of the things that makes this such a difficult number is that because the, the test kits are so unavailable that they're only given to you know they're they're, right. they're they're weighted toward those who are, are they're likely going to have it now if we had the resources that everyone had the test kits and i, I want to harp on this only because this is one of the number one things for us to uh say oh we have this this is one rock solid step of an entry or a gateway towards opening our doors to more public places right, right. and and so this is this is a really important piece and prevalent prevalence is the most important thing at this moment yeah great so totally. that that helps uh, the other thing I want, I want, I know we talked about this, but this is again, building the case. So re- replay this for us, Stephen. Why is it that the world shut down for COVID, right? This virus, but not for Ebola, SARS, or swine flu? Because I'm still getting posts like crazy comparing this is ridiculous. There's some political order behind this, but I'm really guessing there's actually science and not just politics behind this. What, again, are the distinctive elements to COVID that are not shared by these that were, that, that in, that imply that we need to have greater restrictions. Right. So if you had been living in Hong Kong in 2003, or if you had been living in West Africa in 2014, you would have locked down. They did. You know, There was a lockdown for SARS and there was a lockdown for Ebola. But the thing is that neither of those epidemics spread far enough for us to really see those effects here in the United States. So that's one of the key differences here is that, that, that infectious diseases do bring about lockdowns. And, and frankly, those are, those are how you control the spread of infectious disease. 
period. You know, that's that's yeah. what we know from from hundreds of years of epidemic history. Well, you know, thousands of years, but at least you know, our study of epidemics <laughs> yeah, sure. in a formal way has has been, you know, somewhat more recent. And so 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 part of the reason, you know, part of our, our inability to sort of see the connection between these things is simply because we had the privilege of not being affected by them. And that has partly to do just with where they happen to emerge. That has a lot to do with, you know, the effectiveness of the lockdown measures that happened in those places. You know, those people saved us from needing to do that. And the fact that we're doing it now does not mean that there was a failure on the part of the, you know, of China or anywhere else early on in this outbreak. You know, there, there are some important biological and epidemiological differences with COVID versus these other infections as well. So to speak to that. SARS seems like it was really only transmissible after you started showing symptoms. So it was really easy to track cases and to prevent people from infecting other people because you were already infectious and you knew that you really shouldn't be interacting with society. But clearly with, um, with COVID, there's, there are a lot of people who are asymptomatic. You can spread the disease before you're symptomatic. And so we're already fighting a losing battle there. It's a similar story with Ebola. Ebola is actually, in terms of this re reproduction number that we talk about, Ebola is not actually that infectious. It's incredibly deadly once you have it. But the reproduction number is very low, partly because you require the transmission of bodily fluids for, the, for that transmission to occur. And so once again, Ebola doesn't really spread that easily unless you're actively showing symptoms. And the symptoms of Ebola are pretty apparent, you know, yeah. um, which is just not the case for this. And so both of those things made those much easier to sort of contain at their source, whereas now we have this widespread proliferation of infection. Now, the last one you mentioned was swine flu. So I think some of that has to do with a little bit of, well, two things. First of all, we, we're quick to forget. So we did do some amount of social distancing during the swine flu epidemic, nothing on the level at all of what we're doing right now. But I was, I was a freshman in college during that time. And there was a lot of awareness about swine flu, about sort of restricting the, the number of contacts that we had. And that was a very important thing, you know, making sure that people who were at high risk of infection, the very young and the very old were, you know, not interacting with society as much. So, but we realized fairly early on that the, that basically the severity of swine flu was not as high as what it is now. So there were, it seems pretty clear that coronavirus's best estimates right now is at least an order of magnitude more severe. So, you know, probably my best guess is that it's maybe 10, 10 times more severe in terms of case fatality than, than your standard seasonal flu, something like that. And that's been tossed around by a lot of my epidemiologist friends too. And that's, that's a lot, you know, yeah, like that's, that's a lot. And so that's, and so if, if it's 10 times more severe, then our social distancing measures need to be 10 times more severe in response. Sure. Right. And so here we are. This is the hard part, right? Because all this stuff, this this the science, this information, it's buried behind you guys, right? We we don't right. we wouldn't have, have the access, we have to trust you guys, but it, but it seems kind of like that. We just I, you know, in light of this, the uh, I forgot which air, which aircraft carrier this was, the, the USS Theodore, or I don't know which one it was, but uh, there was an aircraft carrier. There it spread the coronavirus everywhere, and they just did it. Realized that they just did a study, or not really did tests. And 60% of those were asymptomatic. So it just kind of goes inside of like, this is a pretty, which is even higher than I think what uh, what you guys were talking about between 25 and 50% is kind of the rough threshold of asymptomatic uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, infection. And this is now 60%. So it just goes to show that, okay, so we're dealing with highly infectious uh, transmission of virus with a decent chunk of population that may show no signs of this. So it can spread like wildfire, which it, which it is. And, mm -hmm. and so I, I wanted to build that case as well. Now, the next thing I want to talk about, and then we're going to get into the deep dive, and this is all building, uh, I think, hopefully a case for why we're here and why it's so important to stay here. 
And that is, okay, we realized that last week we talked about these four criteria, about five criteria, which we can really open our doors safely. And one of them was the test kits, which we saw now the government is now retracting. It's like renege on helping and actually offering assistance, which is a huge and a great step to start building this test test up, having them more available so we can have a widely dispersed testing to see who has it and who doesn't. But the other part of this, the other side of that kind of same coin is the antibody test. And it's still, I think, from what I've read, and Stephen, you can talk about it, we're not quite there yet, that, that it's, it's, it's growing, we're, it's becoming quicker, but there seem to be even some, some false positives and negatives with the testing that hasn't, quite, hasn't been, been quite reeled in yet. Can you speak into where we're at on that? Yeah, so, I mean, you're right. Those, those two kinds of tests are really, you know, absolutely key to getting us out of the weeds with this thing. And so, yeah, and you're right. They, so any sort of test, any sort of clinical test that a person is going to run is going to have some margin of error with a sensitivity and specificity that specificity that we've spoken about on podcasts before. I think one of the, the difficulties is that there is so much demand right now for these antibody tests, in part because people sort of see them as like a get out of jail free card in a sense, yeah. right? Like, so I'm thinking, I'm like, I want one of these things. Either absolutely. I want to get the coronavirus so I can go out or I want to get the antibody test say I've been there. So yeah, totally, I see the right. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's, it's understandable, right? But I think that with that demand comes sort of a scramble to provide these tests. And anytime there's a scramble, as we saw with the with the, with the the RNA tests early on, you know, that 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 you risk having even higher levels of error because they just haven't been well tested and they haven't been well sort of benchmarked against against uh, some standard. And I think that's what we're running into. I think that that there's just such a push to get these things out so quickly that 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 some corners are probably being cut. and And that's really unfortunate because that's going to undermine sort of our our trust in this technology as a whole. and it's it's not that the technology itself is bad. It's just that our implementation of it in this case is. But I think that there's real danger then in, in sort of saying that like, well, you know, none of this matters and none of it makes sense. It's like, well, it's, it's, it, it's not that, but we just need to be, we need to be a little bit careful here. <laughs> yeah, totally. um, so what I'm trying to show is just simply, okay, we, we've been here for a few weeks and it's been really hard. It's hard on my family and I'm not even comparing to the loss I've, I've read from friends who have lost jobs and are not place. So I don't even want to even start doing that comparison. Right. Um, and we want to reopen and we will reopen soon, but we have to do this with a sense of prudence and not through a political agenda. We just can't do this. Otherwise, more harm is going to be made done. And we're going to find ourselves in a worse place through the healthcare system and a worse place economically. So we look back to the, the fact that, okay, we see that it's, it grows like wildfire, that our tests are not widely uh, available right now. The antibody tests are not widely available. They're just now being pushed out with some, with some, with some problems with those. And so now at this moment, Right in the midst of this, right, right in the midst of this, now we're having some states kind of now reconsidering, starting to reopen, not aggressively, but they're starting to reopen. And I want to start, go back to you, Stephen. Like, what do you think when you start hearing this? Like, what's going on in your mind as an epidemiologist? Yeah. So, I mean, there's the very first thing is is a pretty healthy dose of apprehension, right? So, I'm, <laughs> sure. I I am I am afraid of of what will happen in the next couple of weeks as states start to reopen and as they start to do so in a piecemeal manner, you know. I think probably the most important thing to say here is that you know I too have a huge appreciation and and I totally agree I think we can all agree that like that there are profound influ- impacts both directly from the virus but also from the measures that we've taken to try to prevent its spread and I think that's important you know like people's livelihoods are are disappearing to some extent through you know I say to some extent but but frankly they are you know mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's, that's really hard too. So I think we, as I think we can all agree that we do want to return to 
a life in which we can work productively and live in a fulfilled manner and stay healthy. Like all of these things are things that we want to do. And so I think that the the disagreements that we're having right now are sort of in basically what are the risks of each of those things? Because we're living in a period of time when we can't have all of those things to the full at all. You know, there there will be trade-offs to be made. Um, and so I think that's that's my concern is is that these decisions will be made and they will be made on limited information, just given all of the, you know, the the lack of testing that we've had and and just that this is a new virus. This is just something that we really haven't been faced with before. And but one of the issues, of course, as we've talked about before too, is that uh, our our decisions have a profound impact on the people around us. And so what we choose to do as individuals, as cities, as states will spill out to others as well. And I think that's my biggest apprehension is that I think that there are ways to responsibly start relaxing some of these distancing measures, maintaining surveillance, seeing how cases rise, making sure that we don't overwhelm healthcare capacities and being ready at a moment's notice to change our distancing measures and to figure out what we can do to sort of try to maintain the optimum among these things. But the problem that I see is that any amount of haste in any one of these measures is it could could prove to be catastrophic. And that's that's my fear. Yeah, I get it. this is this is like the tension of of like of life. Like you have two things, and I don't want to go like beyond our scope and get like all philosophical, but there's these two guiding principles. I think of any human flourishing, there's two principles. There's a principle of subsidiarity, and it's that really idea of like the of, of human rights, right? Of human freedom of expression, and it's a human right, right? I have the right to express myself, right? That's that's an important part. But there's also this other pillar. It's just it's, it causes angst with the other one. That's the principle of solidarity, right? That, that sometimes, sometimes I have to relinquish my own freedom for the sake of solidarity with another. Um, has anybody ever got married? <laughs> that's kind of what you do, right? So that's a <laughs> microcosm of that, right? That you have this subsidiarity, this freedom by which you relinquish for the sake of another. Now, by no means am I going to go back and say once again, like I've already said, that coronavirus is like a, like a marriage. You're going to think, what is this guy doing? He is crazy, <laughs> right? I'm not trying to do that. It's just a common one because it is, it's like a perfect illustration of love, you know? And so, so we have to like come together and we have to infuse this. We have to be grounded in that which is real at all times. It is so indispensably important. And Yes, I don't have all the answers. Stephen doesn't have all the answers. All we can do is be to be guided by the best resources available and not going to be too quickly sucked into this, this conspiracy theory, right? Without real verification of what's really going on. So we have these, op- these businesses opening. And at and, and the same time, we're having now protests, right? They're starting, they're not huge, but they're in like six states. Denver just had one just the other day ago. Here, I'll play you just a sound bit of what, what's been going on in Denver here. Okay, go to go to China if you want communism. Uh, you're probably wondering where that's from. That's from Denver, but particular on the street where there is a, a few, a couple nurses dressed in their scrubs and their uh, uh, with their face masks on, uh, peacefully blocking uh, a road. Right, and this is the response to them. And every we have the right to protest. I get this, but to take this seriously, I mean, these are the ones who are on the ground level. And this is where I get so confused as well because I just read another blog post of kind of like teasing this out is that this is just some kind of conspiracy theory. This isn't really real. And they never, and they, and they said that they're, they're advancing the cause that if we would just, if we would just would have just allowed this to happen, herd immunity would have just happened within a few weeks. 
and everything would have been just fine and we would have gone with our merry, merry way. Now, I'd love to see what Stephen responds. I mean, my initial response is, that's not actually the reason. <laughs> the reason why we're, I mean, I think everybody's aiming for some kind of herd immunity of, of some sort, right? But I think the initial response was, oh man, if that does happen, we might completely obliterate our healthcare system and nobody's going to have access. I mean, isn't what, Stephen, you can chime in on this now. Isn't that the reason, right? the reason mm-hmm. why we're trying to do social distancing, right? Exactly. Right. No, you're exactly right. You know, like, yes, you're right. If we would have done nothing, the epidemic would have ripped through the population. And, but the thing is like, we haven't yet seen what that looks like on a large scale. Every example that we've seen in every country has, uh, that I'm aware of has implemented some large degree of social distancing, some large degree of sort of intervention measures to try to protect from these catastrophic outcomes. And still, you know, we've, we've seen things like Italy, we've seen things that have been happening in Spain, and we've seen things that are happening right here in the US, you know, in New York, wherever else. And, you know, you're exactly right. This is why we're doing it. Like it's, it's, there's, there's, you know, people were saying early on that we should just take it on the chin, but like, you know, this, (laughs) there, you know, there are some things you take on the chin and you don't get up again from, you know, (laughs) and like, that's that, I think that that's, that's probably the scenario we would have been in. And that's what we're trying to avoid now. And that leads to our last part here under the microscope, just kind of dealing with, so I want to share you this and share with, share this with you, uh, the audience as well as Steven. So maybe like a couple of weeks ago, a week ago, I started seeing this on Facebook. I might, if I can, I'll share it with the show notes, but it'd be this like graph. And it was really from the people who were kind of exposing this, this, the social distance being kind of a facade, not really real and kind of showing that here's, here's the sources of worldwide deaths, you know, from January 1st to April 4th. And it showed coronavirus, you know, at least in this, at the very end, you know, you had hunger, cancer, smoking, alcohol, HIV, road traffic accidents, suicide, malaria, water related diseases, seasonal flu. And then, coronavirus. So, so the implication was, what are we doing this for? This is ridiculous. This is stupid. Let's even compare. If we're going to do it for coronavirus, why don't we do it for the seasonal flu, which we don't? So that's what it was trying to advocate. And then the most recent one, which I think this is, I want, again, Stephen to chime in on this, to kind of bring some, some data behind this. And this is the most recent one. So just last week, 13,000 Americans died from, from the coronavirus, which puts coronavirus for the last week, the highest uh, death related of of anything. So above, uh, uh, where was this at? Above heart disease, above flu, above car crashes, above cancer. It's it's uh, it looks like at fifty one deaths per million, if that's what I'm looking at. So as of last week, so I'm painting this picture. I want Stephen to chat about this for a while. This as of last week, it's now the highest, right? This is in the context of I think pretty aggressive social distancing for three weeks now, right? right. That's with this, right? So I'm I'm a little perplexed. All these people who are trying to advocate that this is not that big of a deal, I'll have now. My last thing I'll say before I get to Stephen is, from what I gather, why there's so many deaths absolutely with these other ones is because they've been around for a while. Car accidents have been around for a while. Cancer has been around for a while. The flu has been substantial, a part of our world habit for years. And now we're dealing with this brand new virus that's really unknown. And in the midst of social distancing. It's now last week spiking. Can you speak more into a little bit about this? Yeah, I mean, you're right that I think that that's exactly the difference. And we need to make sure that we're comparing, you know, apples to apples to the extent that we're able to. And the, in the first statistic, you were saying that it was measuring those things from January 1st until now, right? Yeah. And right. So like, of course, early on in the epidemic, like not many people had had a chance to get infected. But sure. I think you also said that there were 13,000 deaths last week from... Yeah. 
Right. So in a mild flu season, in a mild flu season, we have 12,000 in the oh. United States, yeah. right? And so that's like that the same number of people who die over across the entire flu season died last week in the US, wow. right? And so like yeah. that's and it, it, I, I don't know if that 13,000 was that in the US or was that uh, is, let me just check, check right here. I have but, it. It says 13,000 American. Right. There you go. So, right. So I think that that sort of puts to rest the argument that this is just like the flu. And so <laughs> it's, and like you said, it's in the context of social distancing. It's in the context of all of these other, other things that we've been doing to try to prevent its spread, which, you know, thankfully have, have been working to some extent, but you know, we're, we're still far from out of the woods. And so, yeah, I think that the fact is that cases are rising and they're they're rising around the globe and the reason they're still rising around the globe is because they're rising right here. You know, we are we have been the epicenter of this outbreak now for, you know, some time and will continue to be for some time and we need to treat it as such. And so I mean all I know that probably for many people who are listening we're kind of preaching to the choir. I'm guessing, I'm assuming, but at least the bare minimum to share this with other people who may uh, not agree with this. Uh, because in the end, all we're trying to do is let's look at what is real. I love what Stephen said. Let's compare apples to apples. I think that's part of the problem. Many people are, are comparing apples with like, I don't know, dog dung. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but it's totally opposite in the spectrum. It's not even yeah. edible, right? right? And our goal is to compare apples to apples and make the best decision with science. So I'm going to end with this as well. Now we, now we talked about, I've seen it in the White House about these phases uh, of, of slowly phasing into uh, more social, uh, less social distancing. And I want to could just, Stephen, can I just pick your brain and just general, where do you see assess? I know uh, Lipsitz, you're your uh, your mm -hmm. your professor, dude. I don't know how you talk. Your your BFF, yep. your roommate, whatever he is. Uh, <laughs> so just PSA. I know he's not your roommate. So that's, yep. that's there you go. So what, whatever he is, right? He talked about these these that we were like halfway through the first phase. Where do you see us in the phase cycle? And 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 again, what where do you think we need to be before we actually could really begin to release some of these social Disney measures? Yeah. So I mean, uh, yeah, you're right. And I mean. It, I think it's useful to think about this in terms of phases. And there have been a couple of different propositions for how we should separate out the phases that we we're talking about. Right. But I think so. Right. So we've, there's been this phase of, of rapid proliferation of infection. And now we're sort of in the middle of this phase of social distancing to try to regain control. So I think that, you know, we, we are in some sense on the cusp of a new phase in which now we're trying to, rather than just sort of doing these blanket social distancing measures, we're trying to understand, you know, what, what's effective, what's essential, what do we need to do, and how do we start going about some semblance of normal life while recognizing that we won't actually go back to any sort of life that we would have called normal prior to this for some time. And so, you know, the goal here still is to reduce infections and to get down to the point where hopefully at some point down the road, we can return to contact tracing and sorts of very localized, you know, as we've been talking about, like playing whack-a-mole for a long time, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh -huh. like that's, that's, that's kind of the idea. That's what we would love to get back to, but we're, we're still, you know, we're still clearly a long way away from that. And so we're going to need to continue something like this, something like these social distancing measures for some time. Now, I think that we are we are definitely very soon going to start thinking about what it's going to look like for people to go back to work. Some people, you know, and 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 just how do we do that responsibly? How do we do that in a way that cares for our own health and the health of the people around us? Um, and how do we evaluate our own behaviors such that we're we have a very high threshold threshold for what's essential? You know, there's the we're going to need to pay close attention to you know there, there's still i guess what i'm trying to say is there's still a long period of time ahead where there will be sacrifices 
And one of the things that I lament most is that the sacrifices that we're making now, at least in the in sort of the cultural context that I'm in, haven't been framed as sacrifices sort of for the greater good or sacrifices on behalf of the healthcare workers who need to deal with this. We we did have that sense, I think, and it, I, I definitely don't want to glorify, you know, past periods, especially wartime periods. But I think that there was something to the rationing that we did in World War II, for example, where we all sort of had this collective notion that we were giving up practical, concrete goods in our lives to support our troops abroad and to make sure that, you know, our boys had something to eat. You know, we're doing the same thing right now for our frontline hospital workers, and we're giving up our freedoms. We're giving up oftentimes some very concrete things like flour, you know, like we're rationing. (laughs) We're in a new age of rationing right now, and we're giving those things up to help the men and women who are, you know, working on the front lines right now. But I think the issue is that for whatever reason, we, we're, we're interpreting this as an impingement, like you said, on our freedom. And, and that there's, there's nothing that's going to get an American riled up more than that. And you know, <laughs> rightly so, right? Sure. Like that's, that's what makes us who we are. And there's yeah. something, there is something beautiful about that, but you know, that, that sense of Americanness is second only to the property of Americanness that causes us to help each other out when we're in a rough spot, right? Like, yeah. and so that's the bit that I think that 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 I've heard missing in these conversations so far, and that I so long for a return to that—a sense of meaningful sacrifice, because that is what we're doing, and it, it's it's important. And and I think that's the only way for us to, for us to sustain this really really difficult road ahead of us. That's great. I think it's a great way to begin to to begin to end to begin to end in the sense this idea of where. We are called, there's something about, uh, from the Greek, Greek word kenosis, emptying, that we're always called to, to empty ourselves out. And we're being called in a very particular way right now to really dig deep. It's really easy to um, empty ourselves of our surplus. Uh, but when it's the last bag of flour in your house, like my, my wife and I have a bag of flour that we don't use. We just stare at it because we don't know if we're going to get any more. <laughs> so it's not being used. Yeah. We just look at it longingly and knowing that we're not going to have that kind of bread for a while. And I, and, and the, and the last thing in that, that, that freedom, and this is, everybody might have their own opinion on this. And this, this is goes deep in some philosophical principles. I've experienced my own life, but just an FYI people, Freedom is not for freedom's sake. I mean, it's not that Lockean mentality that at least I agree with, this idea that freedom is just for the sake of just choice to grab onto something, that I think freedom was given to us for the sake of love. That's why it exists. Like I always give the example when I teach my class about like, could you imagine if I, like the two scenarios of proposing to my wife, right? One by which I did in a beautiful way with flowers, but with a gun to my head, right? You know, I wonder how that would have been so, you know, ooey gooey of like, oh, I'm being forced to ask you to marry me versus the freedom to like, I could choose anyone, which I could not choose anyone. I'm very limited in my options. Thank God my <laughs> wife chose to allow me to, she said yes. So uh, that's not theoretically true. Uh, but out of freedom, right. That I ask her to marry me for the rest of my life with me. That freedom is for the sake of love and that we've got to keep this in a real perspective. And what's the loving thing to do? Well, the loving thing to do is to to protect our healthcare workers, to, to to allow them to be on the front lines, to really help those who who've been affected greatly. Right? Um, I haven't been affected as, as nearly as much as other people have, and I have the responsibility to reach out and to do what I can in, in any way to help those who've who've lost. Uh, and then that's what the government's job is as well to help in this time to assist those, and they can always assist better. So I think when I end on this, just it's a difficult time. You've got to stay in the real. Do not allow this to be a political reason or a political thing that be grounded in the truth. And sometimes being real is not just roses and daisies. Like like when we say living in the real, it doesn't mean like, hey, 
put your head in the sand. That's really cool. <laughs> That's not what we mean by this. That sometimes real can really hurt. And I think as, as, a, as, a, as a body, as a society, as an individual, especially myself, in many ways, I'm being called to give of that which I do not have. Um, and that, that, my friends, requires a deep sense of solidarity to get through this. And so the more we have this, this, this dividedness, it's going to be more difficult, right? So it starts with the individual. Do the right thing. Share this episode with other people. Uh, let's help to get the message around. Let's bring a greater sense of solidarity. This is the right thing. But I also hope it ends as soon as it can. Mm-hmm. There's great things coming down the line. I love what Google and Apple are doing with that application. I think it's going to be a groundbreaking thing uh, with the test kits. And it, it's coming, right? It's coming. And we need to still buy time and a ration and be people of goodwill. All right. I think that's it. I hope you guys, oh, I, I almost, almost completely signed off. Just to let you know that if you want to get in contact with Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-I-S-S-L-E-R on Twitter, uh, you can get us on uh, yeah, Twitter on Pandemic Cast, me at M-A-T-T-B-O-E-T-T-G-E-R. I haven't told Stephen this. I'm thinking about creating a uh, pandemic uh, Facebook group that if you guys have questions and that right. kind of stuff, you can just, just chime in. So I might do that uh, this week, and I'll tell you about it on Thursday because today's Monday. That's great. <laughs> So then, and then as well, find if you want more information about me on Living the Real, I'll hopefully have a new podcast out soon. That's livingthereal.com. Sign up for the newsletter. I won't bombard you with messages. Just let you know when things are coming out. All right, guys, I hope you have an awesome rest of your week. Take care, be safe, and we'll see you on Thursday. Bye-bye.